Chapter thirty four of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Prade. Chapter thirty four. News by the Mail. The English Mail is in! The English Mail is in! was the cry which sounded in Barrington's ears about five o'clock on that same afternoon as he lounged down King Street behind the excited crowd that was hurrying down towards the post-office. Both within and without, the building seemed a scene of animation. Ruddy immigrants, noticeable by reason of their eager faces and uncolonial garments, bushmen in cabbage-tree hats and breeches, women with children in their arms or toddling at their skirts, lost creatures in tawdry finery, whose coarse hard countenances were softened by a ray of sentiment at the thought of home, stalwart Englishmen, browned by the tropical sun, who, though prosperous, yet eagerly yearned for tidings of distant friends, old hands, who had inquired oft and anxiously at the same window, all these eagerly demanded if there were any letters from England for them. While apart, little groups, or isolated men and women, devoured with their eyes the thin sheets of foreign paper which fluttered in a light breeze, some smiling, others weeping, as the news might be good or ill. Each face, young or old, dejected or jubilant, seemed in part to reveal its own history. With the impartial interest of a social philosopher, Barrington stood for a moment at the outskirts of the crowd and watched the scene. A middle-aged woman accompanied by a young girl had just returned from the window holding a letter, which she had already opened, in her hand, and as she walked slowly past Barrington, running her eyes down the closely written pages, she exclaimed to her companion, it's for Manny. Now there'll be news of our gem. Then, a moment later, uttered a faint shriek, and clutching the girl's arm, directed her attention to the opening paragraph of the letter. There was a rush of ejaculations and sobs close to Barrington's ear. What had happened? Only a railway accident to the flying Scotchman, thirty lives lost, and Jem was stoker of the train. There seemed an intense grimness in the sight of this desolation which the news, many weeks after date, carried to these two poor hearts, so many thousand miles distant from the scene of the disaster. For the first time, Barrington realized fully the bridge of human interests and emotions which connects the motherland with her far-off daughter colony. He began to speculate with a certain troubled curiosity upon the probable tidings of his own friends and relations which the mail had brought for him. His heart stirred at the thought of his mother's letter. Would she write coldly, or with affection? Did she miss him? Did she regret having bidden him leave her? But it was vain to wonder. There was no spontaneity in Lady Alice Barrington's moods. He inquired of a bystander if there would be any town delivery that evening. No, only the governor, the ministers, and such like bigwigs would get their letters sent to them that night. He would have to ask here if he wanted his. Barrington took his place near the window and, waiting his turn, made his demand. Two packets were handed out to him. One addressed in a clerkly hand to Hardress Barrington Esquire, and marked immediate, the other enclosed in a thin envelope deeply bordered with black. He started and blanched at the sign of mourning, then reassured himself as he recognized his mother's handwriting. One of his nephews, or perhaps a cousin, was dead. Thank God! Nothing had happened to the old lady. Barrington's heart grew tender at the thought of his mother. 
He put the letters in his pocket and, hailing a hansom, dashed down to an hotel where, in the solitude of a private apartment, he opened first that from his mother. It was written in the pointed characters so fashionable a quarter of a century ago, and formally expressed in studied phrases, which seemed to indicate that epistolary correspondence was no light matter to Lady Alice Barrington. This was the letter. Castle Barrington, 20th April. My dearest hardress, never till now have I realized the immense distance by which we are separated. It is hardly conceivable that when this letter reaches you, the mournful intelligence which it bears will be ranked in England among events of the past, and that we shall have so far recovered from the state of bewildered misery into which we have been plunged as to be able to form definite plans for the future. But to state as briefly as possible the terrible calamity which has befallen us. Last week we received an intimation that scarlet fever had broken out in Mr. Hawkins' preparatory school for Eton, where, as you know, Lionel's two sons were placed. Lionel, who was always anxious and perhaps a trifle over-fussy, where the health of his children were concerned, went down himself to bring them home. They travelled back by that ill-fated flying Scotchman, which came into collision with a goods train near Granchester. Thirty persons were killed, and among them my beloved son and my two grandchildren, their bodies mangled in a manner upon which my harrowed feelings will not permit me to dwell. As regards the catastrophe— the papers will furnish you with full particulars. Eleanor, who was at that time expecting her confinement, was so overwhelmed by grief and horror at the news abruptly communicated to her, that shortly afterwards she gave premature birth to a son, who perhaps happily survived his father's death but a few hours. Eleanor is now in a most critical condition, and every moment which I devote to this letter is robbed from my melancholy watch by her bedside. Indeed, I feel that divine grace alone enables my weak frame to support the burden of anguish which has fallen upon me. Alas, I fear a terrible reaction. But it is my prayer that the same grace may sustain me till you return to enter worthily into the high and responsible position to which it has pleased God to elect you. Truly, His ways are inscrutable. And that I may be inspired with words of counsel and encouragement, which you will not disdain to accept from your mother. I care not, then, how soon I am permitted to join the beloved ones to whom my earthly happiness has been mainly due. My son, you are now in a direct line the last male representative of your race. Upon you devolves the old title which your brother and father, and their ancestors for generations, have borne so nobly. I remember that when, after that wretched episode which resulted in your retirement from the guards, I urged so strenuously your departure for Australia, you accused me somewhat bitterly of having sacrificed the tenderness of motherhood upon the altar of family pride. Recollect that the Barrington motto, Death rather than dishonor, has been the religion of my youth and of my old age, and that from my earliest childhood I was taught to reverence the name of Barrington as the type of truth and nobility. Asterisk. Lady Alice Clarence was, upon the female side, a cousin of her husband, Sir Lionel Barrington. Return to text. From the hour of my marriage it became my holiest mission to preserve that name unsullied. Think, then, what could have been my feelings when your extravagance and dissipated habits, I will use no harsher terms, threatened to disgrace it. Your English career was practically closed. 
there was no prospect but ruin before you. An unpleasant notoriety was attached to your name. I had faith in the latent manliness and energy in your character, which I felt might be developed by the impetus of a fresh opening in a distant land. And I believed that, once separated from the baleful influences that beset you in London, you might retrieve the past and carve out a new and honourable career. Now, by the death of your brother and of his two sons, all the circumstances of your life are changed. To Sir Hardress Barrington, society will readily pardon what it would have been slow to condone in the case of a penniless younger son. Come home at once. New interests and responsibilities await you. Meet them nobly. Should our dear Eleanor be taken from us, you will become the natural guardian of Lionel's daughter. Mr. Burnley tells me that your presence is urgently desirable. Lose not a day in taking your passage to England. Mr. Burnley is writing to you on matters of business. I will add no more except to assure you that you will be received with open arms and that my prayers are with you. Your loving mother, Alice Barrington. Barrington smiled grimly as he refolded the letter. Le roi est mort, vive le roi, he muttered. Poor mother! It is a bitter pill for her to swallow, but she takes it at a gulp. I was right. The family honor is her fetish. Lionel dead? I cannot realize it. I have always thought him a prig, but he was a downright good fellow when you pierced the crust, and we were fond of each other after a fashion. I think he would have liked me better if I had been a parson and had settled down in the family living, and next to that he preferred me in Australia. He was better fitted for the English county magnet business than I shall ever be. My mother bows to the decrees of Providence, but she admits that they are inscrutable. What possible reason could the Almighty have had for mangling those poor children? It will be a hard nut for her faith to crack. But the title, such as it is, she fancies a sort of apostolic unction. The head of the house of Barrington can do no wrong. It is a queer world. I was a beggar yesterday, skulking about the premier's back gate. I am a baronet today. Not that it will make any difference in Longleat's sentiments. Poor little chaps, he added with a regretful pang at the thought of his nephew's bonny faces. The urchins he had dandled on his knees at Castle Barrington and tipped at school. It is hard lines upon them that they should not have their innings. I don't think that I'd have grudged little lie the handle to his name. How will Honoria receive this news? No need to marry her now for the sake of the Tarangella tin mine. What will my mother say to the introduction of alien blood into the pure Barrington stream? Honoria is a radical at heart. She will never worship at the ancestral shrine. There's something in that girl that wakes the devil in me. Old Ferris was right. Perhaps. The taint of the mother. He broke the thread of his thoughts by tearing open the lawyer's letter. Mr. Burnley briefly explained the circumstances of Sir Lionel's death, the disposition of his property, and concluded by strongly urging the necessity for Hardress's return to England, expressing a doubt as to the ultimate effect of the shock she had sustained upon the fragile constitution of Lady Alice Barrington. "'Her thoughts seem now entirely centred on you,' wrote the lawyer. 
Ever since your departure she has been consumed with feverish anxiety for news of you. Her grief for Sir Lionel is silent and repressed. You represent her earthly source of consolation. She said to me yesterday, If I could only see my son Hardress happily married and taking his place worthily here, I should die in peace. You know your mother's reticence and unwillingness to own to any weakness. But I shrewdly suspect that remorse has weighed upon her ever since she advised your banishment to Australia. Barrington was deeply affected by these allusions to his mother. From his childhood, this beautiful, undemonstrative woman had exercised a powerful though passive influence over his emotions. He had loved her even when he had been bitter against her. And now, a yearning came over him to see her, to gratify the proud expectations that she had once cherished of him. The gray walls of his old home rose in his mind, and awakened in it a keen longing to return. He breathed again the atmosphere in which he had been born and reared, and marveled that he could have existed elsewhere. His thoughts went drifting back amid old scenes and companions, the men of his regiment, the women who had smiled upon him. Would they be gracious to him once more? And then his mind turned towards Honoria. He grew hot and cold. His breath rose and fell rapidly. His heart throbbed. It became borne in upon him that they two no longer stood upon the same footing. The shock of his sudden social elevation, and the influence of his mother's affectionate exhortation, and of the prayers and blessings reached forth from her letter, seems to have changed entirely his moral attitude towards the girl whom he at once loved and despised. Yesterday he had deemed it no sacrifice to make Honoria his wife. Tonight, with the vision of his mother's sorrowful face fresh in his imagination, as he thought of her revived hopes for his future career, of the duties and responsibilities that now devolved upon him, of the broad Barrington Acres, the refined society which had contributed to the pleasure of his old life, of the new existence opening before him, with its possibilities of great achievement and its certainty of social rehabilitation, in which marriage represented such an important feature, he trembled and wavered. Was not the price to be paid for the joy of calling Honoria his own heavier than, under the circumstances, could reasonably be demanded from him? The revenues of the great Tarangella tin mine were nothing to him now, and the advantages of a union with Miss Longleat were no longer patent. Could he ask Lady Alice Barrington to open her arms to the daughter of a radical bullock driver? Was Honoria's mother such an ancestress as future Barrington's might acknowledge without shame? A thousand times, no. Then he reflected upon the manifold inconsistencies in Honoria's nature. Her frankness and boldness pushed to the very verge of indiscretion. Her scorn of conventionalities. Her impatience of the dictates of her petty world. Her thirst for experience her susceptibility to argument and entreaty, her self-reliance and yet her proneness to be dominated by the passionate impulses of the moment, her freedom of speech, and a certain abandon of action and manner to be attributed to the influences which from her birth had surrounded her, but which, in the course of Barrington's experience, had never been combined with the traditional reserve of a carefully trained young lady who may only be approached in the conventional manner sanctioned by polite society. It had been arranged that they were to meet that evening at the usual trysting place. Could he venture to broach to her a plan of immediate flight? How far would it be possible to overcome her scruples? 
to gloss over dishonor by honeyed phrases and specious arguments, the imperative necessity for his return, the difficulty of triumphing over her father's opposition to his suit, the desirability of deferring the ceremony of marriage till they reached Sydney, England, the break from all old ties which would leave her untrammeled by the past. Could he dare whisper in her ear promises of devotion, of lifelong fidelity, of marriage in the sight of God, the hackneyed jargon which rises so glibly to the lips of a fashionable profligate? Barrington dined alone. He was in a queer, excited mood. Yet, mid all his excitement, there ran the regretful thought of his mother's grief, of the sorrowing widow, of the dead boys. He had been engaged in a vague way for that evening, but remained at the hotel, having a notion that it would be indecorous to show himself in general society. Below in the coffee-room there was a meeting of rowdies. He could hear rough voices raised in shouts and oaths and doggerel songs, in which the Premier's name resounded frequently. In two days the new Parliament was to be opened, and Leichardt's Town was rife with political agitation. Without, in the street, there was the roar of traffic. The cabs and jingles were flying to and fro, and the lights twinkled in the shop windows, while the newsboys cried a late edition of the Leichardt's Town Chronicle, in which was the English intelligence. Barrington bought a paper, and read a detailed account of the accident to the Scotch Express. It was as though he had been in a dream. He drank deep draughts of champagne, and every now and then would give himself a shake as if to convince himself that the tidings he had received were real. The hours passed slowly, and the craving for Honoria's companionship became intense. It was more passionate than mere lover's longing to see and speak to the object beloved. At last he took up his hat and went forth, shunning the thoroughfare, but passing through lonely streets, and loitering in an unfrequented quarter by the river till the hour for his love-meeting drew near. End of chapter 34 Read by Céline Major.